Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. In Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Chuck Reese co-founded an online publication, The Bitter Southerner, in 2013 with the sole intention to debunk stereotypes of Southerners as well as the region itself. After the murders of Ahmaud Arbery and George Floyd, Reese said that stereotypes were the least of our region's problems. The division afflicting our entire nation, and especially southern states, had become our largest problem. Chuck and his wife, Stacy Reese, created Salvation South, to spur civil conversation about important issues and promote stories of Southerners of all colors and backgrounds. Later in the hour, we'll learn how Salvation South celebrates the many ways in which Southern culture unites us. Plus, our series, Speaking of Music, features Atlanta guitarist and singer Brandon Neal of the rock and soul band Rare Birds. First, the lure of Italy is centuries old, and that irresistible appeal is central to Hotel Portofino, a new PBS series airing now on WABE-TV. The series follows the Ainsworth family, who have relocated from Britain to open an upscale hotel in a quaint town on the Italian Riviera. Joining me now via Zoom to tell us more about Hotel Portofino are the executive producer Walter Luzzolino and writer Matt Baker, welcome to City Lights. Thanks, Lois. Thank you, Lois. Under the Tuscan sun was just one in a very long line of phenomenally popular stories set in the sumptuous beauty of Italy. What are the origins of Hotel Portofino? I think the origins, from my perspective, I would like to take you back to a a rather uh, damp and cold and dark autumn day in London back in 2020 when 
we were deep in the uh, second lockdown as a result of the uh, COVID pandemic. And I wanted to write something which was, given the mood of the time, unashamedly escapist and unashamedly sunny. I suppose the other thing to add to that is that I've always been, you know, I've always had this enduring love of Italy. I visited it first when I was 13. I was lucky enough to go on a school trip to Venice, of all places, and uh, and I fell in love with the uh, culture and the cuisine and the climate um, in those early days. So those were the inspirations. And then it, in conversation with Walter, who works for Eagle Eye Drama, which is the company that oversees production with his business partner, Joe, we, we talked about setting a, a drama both in, in Italy, but also in the period of the 1920s, partly because it's an exciting period in history, but also because there are obvious parallels between the 1920s and 100 years later, the the 2020s. So Walter is a a native of the Ligurian region where uh, Portofino is found. And um, between the three of us, we came up with the idea of setting a a drama based in a a hotel on the Italian Riviera. And indeed, the period following World War I allows for multiple storylines and drama. How does the time period inform this series? I think, I mean, very specifically, obviously, it adds a dramatic backdrop to the the family drama and the love story that forms the core of the series. So it allows us to play with shades of light and dark because obviously Italy in the 1920s was going through after the war was going through a period of significant upheaval with the the rise of Mussolini and the advent of fascism it was a very complex time in Italian history so in the immediate context of the show it gives you the ability to play between light and, and, and dark as I said I think more broadly I think it allows you to pick out themes and, and actually encourage the audience to see parallels in, in some of the themes between uh, the sort of stories of personal awakening and personal enlightenment that our characters are going through in the 1920s and some of the issues we're still wrestling with as a society today, some of the issues around identity and culture and personal freedom. So I think it was the combination of those two things, the, the ability to, to play with light and shade and, the, and to sort of include a, a sort of historical political storyline around the rise of fascism in Italy, but but also the the chance to play with some broader themes and to encourage the audience to see some parallels between the the, the time we're watching, the 2020s, and that period 100 years ago between between the the two world wars. And indeed, those themes you mentioned, the parallels, are striking extreme politics, intolerance, the rise of totalitarianism, war at its core. In episode one, we meet various characters staying at or living in the Hotel Portofino. Would you introduce us to the main players? So the main, the core of the story, it has an upstairs, downstairs dynamic at its heart. So you have the Ainsworth family, you have Bella Ainsworth, who's the sort of the matriarch of the family. She's the moving spirit between behind her family's move to Italy. I think her idea is they've been through personal trauma. Her daughter has been, been widowed, has lost her husband during the war. 
Um, her son has been injured during the war and she thinks moving to Italy will, will, will give him a fresh start. With her is her aristocratic husband, Cecil Ainsworth, who is our anti-hero, I guess. Cecil's very charming, but he's also a bit of a cad and he's sort of preying on Bella's good deeds, if you like, to sort of live a rather dilettant lifestyle. And then there are the two, their two children. There's Alice, as I said, who's a, who's a war widow, and there's Lucian, who's, who's an artist, who, who's still sort of eight years on, still sort of recovering from the sort of mental and physical scars of uh, that he's experienced in the war. And then downstairs, if you like, there's the staff that are uh, helping them populate and operate the hotel. There's a variety of, you know, there's Betty the cook, there's Billy, her son, and probably most importantly, there are a range of Italian characters, local Italian characters who are waiters and handymen. And there's also this character, Constance March, who's a, who's a young woman from a working background who has had a difficult experience in the past, but is sort of coming to Italy to try and find a new way forward in life for herself. So that's the core dynamic. And then around that, obviously, the beauty of setting a, a, a drama in a hotel is you have you have various, the, the guests, if you like, the various characters, whether they're a rather aristocratic and haughty matriarch, um, Lady Latchmere and her traveling companion. Aunt. Calm down, dear, don't flash. Do you have to see this? Good heavens. I feel quite unsteady. Shall I fetch Mr. Zengupta? Uh, no, no. That, that won't be necessary. Perhaps I'll have a glass of that Italian lemonade I had for breakfast. Yes, Aunt. Thank you, Aunt. Run along. An English tennis champion and his wife, an American art dealer, and his wife, in inverted commas, a lady he's brought with him for a week away, and, and various other characters as, as well. And then around that, obviously, there's the, the, the locals and... Um, Italian characters, including a sort of local, a local fascist dignitary, the sort of local leader of the fascist party, who's who's probably our our most conventional baddie, if you like. Oh, you are too kind, calling him a dignitary, Matt. <laughs> well, I think the bit one of the key themes of Hotel Portofino. Walter will correct me on this if I'm going too far, but I think there's always this running joke about Italian bureaucracy. And Danione is a fascist, but he's also a hard, a petty bureaucrat. He's, his whole thing is about using the rules to personally um, enrich himself. So yeah, he's a, he's a, he's a baddie on, on different levels. Signore, how can I help you? Well, it is a delicate matter. Let's see how to start this. Um, I believe this belongs to you. Who gave that to you? You have to know nothing happens here without me knowing about. But this is a private letter. I know, full of private sentiments, and it will be una grande disgrazia. I mean, it will be a disaster if this, let me see, fall into the wrong hands. Yes, you're quite right. Well, then, I must thank you for returning it, Signora. Please. Sure. Well... Let's hope the many letters you wrote have reached their destination. Hmm? Signore, what exactly is it that you want? What we all want, Signor Answer. Sony. Even 
in episode one, we develop a sense of who the endearing characters are and who will be the villains. Mrs. Ainsworth is a lovely person, and she is smitten with beauty. There's a wonderful scene where she puts a record on the gramophone, and we hear the Casta Diva, the famous aria from Bellini's Norma. How does this theme of salvation through art or the healing power of art unfold in the story? That's that's actually, I can take a bit of credit for that one because as Matt knows, and he's an opera lover himself, but I'm a rabid opera fan and lover. And when we were brainstorming the show and, and Matt created the main characters and the storylines and the plots and, and all together with Matt and, and with Joe McGrath, who's the chief creative officer at our production company, we were all sort of throwing in elements that reflect our own passion and love and enthusiasm for Italy and for the subject matter and for storytelling in general. And the idea, first of all, of music and gramophone was very dear to both of us. I remember, Matt, I left you a vocal message on that on the way to the tube, and, and Matt responded very quickly saying, that's a good idea. It can create a very choral moment where we pause for a moment. We don't just necessarily propel the action forward, but we pause and we allow all characters to come together and to listen to sort of echoes of the music in and around the hotel, which felt like a really lovely, magical part. You're absolutely right, Lois, that the overall and overriding idea is uh, the redeeming power. It's not just that, but it's the redeeming power of beauty, but also the unsettling power of beauty, because you were referring to uh, existing literature in this space you're on. Of course, there's Ian Forster and, and all the sort of enchanted April room with a view where angels fear to tread. So there's a, there's a wonderful and illustrious tradition of British literature, of the sort of innocence abroad, which is buttoned up, pale Brits, go to Italy, are exposed to the sensual, ravishing beauty of the country. And, and that somehow transforms them and transforms their outlook on life. And sometimes with positives, other times with very dramatic consequences. And so Matt, myself and Joe were all fans of that strand of wonderful, I would say, Victorian onwards type literature. And so we definitely wanted to tap into that. And Bella completely embraces and, and is central to that spirit. You're absolutely right. She's this delicate, kind, giving woman, but she's also incredibly passionate and, and responds to beauty. And beauty is what inspired her when she first saw the place during her honeymoon. And she thought that, that Italy and its beauty would provide a cure for the family scarred by the war, as Matt hinted earlier. That theme is threaded throughout and across the entire series. And actually, beauty becomes a magnet for drama anyway. Even when, the, you, I don't give any spoilers, but there's a story about a Rubens painting, or is it Rubens? That's the question. There's a, there's a painting and there's an intrigue around that and what happens to that, because it's obviously a canvas potentially of significant value. 
And that's also another instance in the program where beauty galvanizes the story and the characters around it with quite dramatic consequences. So I, I think that you're absolutely right. The beauty is the subtext uh, in all its manifestations. But I think that in the end, and there are lots of dramatic ups and downs all across the series. But I would say that the glue is the beauty of Hotel Portofino and of, of the seascape and of the rocks cutting into the sea and on the old fishermen's houses. And it's imbued with that. I think the director did a stunning job of creating fantastic vignettes that are very skillfully woven across the fabric of the program. And so no matter how funny, tragic, dramatic, tense the moment you might be watching is, there's always a moment after that lets you breathe, a bit like the Bellini piece you were to now, where you take a breath and you remind yourself that you are in this extraordinary kaleidoscope of beauty, nature and charm. Walter, I am just speechless at your description. It's exquisite and it sums up the series so beautifully. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes speaking with two of the creatives behind Hotel Portofino, writer Matt Baker and executive producer Walter Luzzolino. The PBS series airs Sundays on WABE-TV. I was hoping if you would talk about Matt, you or Walter, if you like, please talk a bit about the American character. For once, he doesn't, or at least early on, it's not the ugly American we see so much. What is his role and what does his presence with his attractive lover provide? I should preface this answer by saying, just as I'm a huge fan of Italy and Italians and all things of that part of the world, I'm also a huge fan of America and Americans and all things American as well. So do you know what the nationality, Lewis, wasn't really, I guess, what I had in mind when I, I drew the character of Jack Turner? For me, the characters don't sort of separate into nationalities. They, they separate into mindsets, if you like. I think there are people who I would probably label progressives. And I think Bella is the leader of that camp, if you like. And then there are people I would label conservatives. And I think uh, Cecil is probably the leader of that camp. And then there are lots of characters who probably some magnetise towards one of those poles and some magnetise towards the other. I think we've got two American characters, and I suppose one of them, Jack, the male character, probably magnetises a bit more towards the Cecil camp. He's a, he's a businessman, he's a man of the world, he's self-made, he's dynamic, but he, like Cecil, he, he has quite a narrow mind and his, his view of the world is very much, uh, you know, through the prism of what things are worth and he's very transactional. So that is the Jack Turner character. He has, you know, I, I think with all our characters, they have duality. We hope I wouldn't want any of our characters to be irredeemably unlikable or unpleasant, but equally not even the characters we like and root for have flaws and make mistakes. So there's Jack and then there's Claudine, who is a, a singer and a, an entertainer, sort of from a from a, a lowly background who sort of made her way to, to Europe and has found success and is now living 
a, a life sort of representing a sort of degree of sort of social liberation, particularly for women at the time. So there are a couple, if you like, who share a nationality, but as the series goes on, they're sort of drawn apart. They're, they're probably brought together by uh, material aspects of the lives they lead. But actually, as the as the series goes on and circumstance affects them, you you find them probably drawn more into the separate camps and, and, and Claudine, the female character, probably being drawn more into the world of the progressives and, and Jack, the more conservative character, being drawn into the, the world of the conservatives, if you like. Well, and the fact that Claudine is African-American is an important aspect of how their story unfolds as a couple and how certain people perceive her at the time. Not only that, for sure, uh, Lois, but also there's a, there's a historical precedent which Matt and I were inspired by, which is obviously Josephine Baker. And it's such an extraordinary political character of, of an American woman that, that defies tensions within her own culture to find power and success and self-affirmation in France, of all places, where she becomes a female brand. We discussed this several times, how sort of before any Coco Chanel or whatever, Josephine Baker was singer, dancer, actress, but also she had chains of restaurants. She had, she sold puppets, she bought a castle. She was working within French politics during the war. So she's one of these extraordinarily multifaceted individuals that transcended any racial, sexual, cultural stereotype to, to affirm life models and paradigms that are, that are extraordinary nowadays. All her adopted children. I mean, we watched several documentaries on Josephine Baker. We knew and loved her anyway, but we documented ourselves before getting into the writing of this. And it's still gobsmacking what the woman achieved and what she represents. So we felt it was such an interesting connection to the contemporary world, but that, that it was rooted in reality, it was rooted in somebody who indeed existed. You know, if, if you look at Claudine, she almost looks like a work of fiction and fantasy because. She's so interesting and, and rich and complex, and yet she's based on somebody who was infinitely more complex, as we saw through, through the decades. So I think that was an important thing to reflect in that. And also representative of a number of Black artists, jazz musicians, painters, writers, poets, who were able to find some liberation in relocating to Western Europe at the time. Matt, I read that this is your first original series for television and that your background is in journalism. That's correct, Lois. So um, I was a, a specialist reporter about media and television for, for many years. And actually, I also worked in corporate relations for a number of kind of large British and and even American uh, institutions and companies so I'm I, I'm one of these people who very with with huge gratitude to Walter and Joe who, who believed in me and gave me the opportunity I'm one of these uh, people who who used the the pandemic and the upheaval that that caused in all our lives to sort of pivot away from the path that I was on and, and and to head off to do something that I've always aspired to. I've always written, Lois, I've always 
written, you know, got up in the morning or late at night, I've always written and I've tried to write novels and, and poems. And I'm, it's not like I'm an entirely new to creative writing, but this is, this is my first attempt in original screenwriting. I've done some adapted series before for television, but this, yes, Hotel Portofino is, is my first piece of original writing for, for screen. And I'm, I'm extremely grateful for the opportunity, but also very proud of it. Oh, that's quite wonderful. Some of the actors in this British period drama will seem familiar to American viewers. I think most of all to me is the actor who plays Lady Latchmere. Yes, Anna Chancellor. You know, she's a veritable British institution from the old days of four weddings and a funeral, and she's an absolutely wonderful, sassy, clever, sharp performer. And and she plays the matriarch, Lady Latchmere, which is a very joyful and exciting character who goes on a very significant journey herself. She she comes on as a, you think you know what she's going to be like, like a sort of fussy, complaining, a bit irritated and brittle. And yet during the course of the series, she goes on a very interesting journey and reveals very unexpected sides to the other hotel guests and indeed to the viewers. So it will be hopefully a joy for viewers to, to discover the different facets of her personality. Oh, I think she is marvelous. She's not quite old enough. The actor is not quite old enough, but she does kind of cut her own Maggie Smith figure very well in this series. Completely, she does. And she, but she has a real warmth. Her wit is built around real warmth. She's incredibly likable, even when she's at her most obstreperous. It's difficult not to love her. She's the kind of aunt we'd all like to have, I think. <laughs> and like um, a lot of the characters in, in the series, she has also uh, suffered a, a deep personal tragedy, which sort of, I think, um, plays a part in informing in her, her changing worldview. Mm. Well, we have one main character to talk about, and that is Portofino itself. Could this series have been possible without Portofino? And how is the town itself a character? Very good question. I would say I am from there, as Matt said earlier. I was born and raised 20 minutes drive from Portofino, and that's where I spent most of my childhood. Most people from Genoa and the Riviera just escape there because it's, it's, it's your nearby place to uh, enjoy beauty. So I've always dreamed about being able to bring my work. I've been living in London now for about 25 years. So I always dreamed about being able to create something that would allow me and my colleagues to spend time there. So I lobbied quite heavily <laughs> for that topic. Oh, it's one of those happy incidents of chance. Myself and my partner, Joe McGrath, were curating a film festival around Portofino. And there we became friends with the, the woman running it. And, and we just said, one of these evenings, in a sort of, uh, on the off chance, we said, would you ever be able to help us gain access to this if we had a right idea to film a program here? And she said, of course, you, you'd be welcome. So at that point, we started thinking that we really wanted to create something in and around Portofino. And you are right, Lois, Portofino is indeed a character. And it is a character because of the particular geography and the tone of the place. It's, you've got to picture it and you've seen it and contextualize it. It is a small, very humble fisherman's village, but it is located in an incredibly beautiful enclave where the rock cuts into the sea. And, and it's where literally the, the coast turns and looks towards the Cinque Terre. So 
of its spectacular locale over the years, and particularly around the early 19th century, it became the place where very wealthy international tourists built impressive villas. And so there's a real interesting tension. And if you go nowadays, it's still exactly like that. It's a tiny, tiny little village with a couple of alleyways, which are still nice and humble and accessible, paint peeling off the fishermen's houses. So it's still very rustic and it coexists with incredible splendor and wealth. And, you know, you got top fashion designers with their helicopter pads landing on their chateaus there. So this really intriguing mixture of super wealthy and very authentic fishermen lends a real quality and aura to the place. And I think you capture it in the show. You, when you watch the program, you understand it's a place where, you know, Danioni, the local fascist, can be a sort of dirty dealer and trade in bad things. And, and there are farmers picking up the grapes to make the wine. And then there are aristocrats walking up and down the promenade. So there is a quite unique cocktail in there, which is less, say, Côte d'Azur or those places which are overtly enclaves of the super wealthy. There's something really genuinely and uniquely Italian about it, which I think lends a really significant quality to the place and the show itself. Hotel Portofino's executive producer, Walter Luzzolino, and the show's writer, Matt Baker. The new PBS series airs Sundays at 8 p.m. on WABE-TV, then re-airs the following Sunday afternoon at 3.30. You can also view the series through PBS Passport. More information is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, we'll hear about Salvation South, the new online publication from the founder of The Bitter Southerner. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. If you've lived in the South for a while, you may well be familiar with The Bitter Southerner, an online publication that was created with the sole intention to debunk stereotypes of Southerners as well as the region itself. Chuck Reese co-founded The Bitter Southerner in 2013 and left to start a new endeavor last year, Salvation South. 
along with his wife, Stacy Reese, the two created this new online publication to address today's Southern narrative. When they joined me via Zoom in January, Chuck expressed his surprise at the reach of the bitter Southerner. I'm not sure that we expected the reach to be as broad as it got over the years, but you know, as it grew, we certainly appreciated that happening. I personally felt that we needed to begin addressing something else. He said that we were created with the purpose of debunking Southern stereotypes, and that's absolutely true. We were created for that specific purpose. And here we are, you know, eight years later, and if you look at the South and the problems that it has, stereotypes are kind of the least of our problems. Hmm. How so? Well, I, th I think it's the division that's been sown, you know, all over the country, but particularly in many ways in our region. And what I wanted to do with Salvation South was put together a publication that at least could serve as a model for civil conversation and would bring, you know, voices from different sides of the table to bear on the discussion about whatever issue it might be, whether it's race and reconciliation. And, you know, one of the things that we decided to do was to take on weighty topics like that, but also let people write about their mama's pimento cheese recipe. Hmm. Food does tend to unite us, doesn't it? Food and music, I like to think. That's, that's absolutely true. You know, what we do and talk about in the kitchen and the music we play and talk about, they're absolutely things that bind us together, no matter what other differences that we have. We told people to think of Salvation South as a big old house party. <laughs> Stacy, what were your thoughts about creating this publication together with your husband? Well, this is basically the icing on the cake of what we've been doing already. I have a tiny red barn. It's a two-story barn in my backyard where I produce southern made goods tea towels napkins coasters aprons and things like that and i was making dish towels for the bitter southerner so you know being able to work with chuck dealing with the issues that are facing not only our country but you know what's closest to my heart is the south you know i'm born and raised southern and seeing the incivility and uh, the discord that we've got amongst neighbors in a region that is known for neighborliness really broke my heart. And so I'm just as passionate about Chuck and bringing a new voice where people who disagree can come together over apple cobbler. And my apple cobbler is pretty good. <laughs> I would love to taste it. Where does, where does peach enter this Southern picture? My apple cobbler recipe, you just substitute peaches, okay. and it works out great. So. Okay. Stacy. indeed, you are the curator for this publication's merchandise, having started with The Bitter Southerner, which has such wonderful T-shirts with slogans like, Abide No Hatred, 
and practice radical empathy. I see a lot of those. Well, I also have another company called Down South House and Home, and I have created a line of napkins and coasters and tea towels that are separate from what I did with the Bitter Southerner. So right now we have our city coaster collection. So if you if you live in a large southern city, we probably have a coaster or a napkin dedicated to your city. And I'd like to bring a fresh modern twist to Southern design with Salvation South. Down South Houston Home is clean classic Southern designs that you know, a lot of what you see in gift stores are snarky or tacky or downright lewd. And with Down South, I was hoping to make uh, products that would go in any kitchen that I could give to my mama without making her blush. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so I use a lot of traditional design with those Down South towels. With Salvation South, I would like to bring some, you know, maybe some more funkier logos with traditional Southern thoughts, you know, a bit more of the contrast of where the South is. The South is a very modern region with very modern thoughts, but we still, we love a lot of the traditions of the South. So I would like to bring those traditional concepts into a more modern visual representation. Any humorous slogans for now? Well, I think we will have some slogans as we go they will develop but you know one of the things that that i am a little more focused on it's like you look at the slogan-based t-shirts that the bitter southerner has and it's almost as if those shirts are challenging you to a fight you know it's like you know if you don't think the same way that i do you know i don't want anything to do with you and i think we can come up with some shirts and slogans that have to do with the things that unite us. You know, if we've got one person who thinks one way wearing a t-shirt that says, you know, I love my mama's biscuits or something like that, walking down the street, they run into another person who also happens to love his or her mama's biscuits. You know, they start up a conversation and maybe those people were coming from different sides of an issue, but they've got something to unite them exposed itself through that t-shirt. That's kind of the way we're thinking about that. You mentioned issues specific to the South beyond race relations. In a sense, what you said about the country, isn't that just what we see in the South writ large? I mean, this divided nation of ours, many people who simply don't want to hear the other side. How Southern is that? Well, I think it's about the context in which a conversation like that happens. In other words, you know, if two people can come together in a context that has nothing to do with their differing political or, or social views, they're often able to, to talk together in a way that you might not expect them if you knew what their political and social views were. You know, and another thing too, is that I think, Stacy and I both think, and this is one of the reasons that, that drove us to do this publication, is that we know there are people out on the extremes on the left side and people out on the extremes on the right side 
but we think there are way more people in the middle who really are overlooked by the mass media and who aren't as vocal on social media who would love the opportunity to have civil conversations with people who don't believe exactly what they believe. You know, and I think the very first story that we ran, which was called But I Have Hope by a North Carolina writer named Russell Worth Parker, was about exactly that. And, you know, I would recommend that people go to the stories page on our website and read that piece because it, it will give you a really good idea of what our attitude is toward issues like that. So how do you hope? to engage that large group of people in the middle who may provide more hope for us? Well, with writing like that and good storytelling, that's what we want to do because no one can resist a story about mama's community cheese or whatever. Peach power. You know, I think on both sides, on the extremes of both sides, we may not have gotten the full story about every issue that's causing division in this country. And, you know, when I think about Salvation South, I think about the Cajun Navy. You know, when there's a hurricane that hits Texas or Louisiana, there's a bunch of country boys getting in their trucks where their coolers and they're fishing boats and they're going out and they're rescuing people and they don't ask people who they voted for when they're pulling them out of their second story window and you know when push comes to shove we're all good people and i think we can be reminded of that one story at a time that is what we hope for chuck you have said that you discovered a quality particular to the south in how much all people who are born and raised here want to celebrate our common culture. Yeah. How will Salvation South help achieve that desire? You mentioned the great stories. How do you plan to reach more people with these stories? Well, I think it's a matter of time for us. People didn't tend to think of my previous publication something that had kind of overnight success and that's not really the truth that you know we were kind of doing it in the darkness for the first year and a half you know when we just volunteer writers and we were doing the best we could on you know but I think what we're doing here is sort of building a little at a time by adding one story a week you know we publish four stories a week and it can be about a long list of topics that fit within Salvation South, where, you know, people get to see the culture of the South in a way that amuses them mm-hmm. or touches their heart. We've got a piece coming up called The Casserole, and it's about the thing that happens in the South where if someone in your community or your family passes away, people bring casserole, you know, under the assumption that you're going to be too busy or too tired or too aggrieved to to cook. And that if you don't eat them, you can put them in your freezer and bring them out for your family, you know, weeks or months down the line. You know, that's a practice that everyone down here engages in. I think that if we find the things that all of us engage in, 
that represent our love for each other. And, and these are all things that are embedded in our culture. Well, that's, you know, they're, they really are. Our stories will demonstrate what the best of Southern culture is. And, and they'll bring people together around them. And we're also putting calls out for writers to send stories about civility and kindness and you know, good manners, you know, give your family memories about good manners. And that could be your mama scolding you about church or, you know, how you saw your daddy show some kindness to somebody who was less fortunate than your family. And I think getting people to remember what was good when times were divided back then there were you know there was there were acts of kindness and civility through all the eras of division in the south and so we would like people to send in stories of you know something something that they remember that was an extraordinary act of kindness that they saw growing up in the south stacy you mentioned church certainly our region is known for religiosity and I wondered how intentional the title of your publication is in terms of referencing religion, that being salvation. We knew that some people would take the name in that sense, but we tend to think of it more in terms of the second definition that you will find in the Merriam-Webster Unabridged Dictionary, which is freedom from ignorance. The thing about it is, is that I don't mind it prompting thoughts of religion in people, because one of the things that we swore we would not do at the Bitter Southerner was cover religion. You know, there's the old saw in the South about never talking about politics or religion at the dinner table. But, you know, in Salvation South, we intend to talk about religion because one of the things that you find if you start looking at, you know, groups on the ground that are trying to bridge the lines of division that we've drawn for ourselves, many of them are faith-based. There's some that are in the Christian faiths. You know, there are some, you know, that are based in, in Judaism. There are some that are based in Islam. You know, we want to cover those things. In fact, we have an upcoming piece by an Episcopal priest who's going to make this argument. And so we invite that kind of thing in because we want to bring in a group of writers and a group of readers who are a true representative of what we see going on in the South. Chuck and Stacy Reese from our January conversation. More information about Salvation South is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Coming up, our series Speaking of Music, where we hear from local musicians in their own words. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for joining me. It's time now for our segment, Speaking of Music, where we get to hear from Atlanta musicians in their own words. 
Hi, my name is Brandon Neal. Uh, I play guitar and sing with the Rare Birds right out of here in Atlanta, Georgia. There's four of us, a quartet. We've got a couple guitars, bass, drums, and some vocals. We call rock and soul, kind of a mix of 70s rock, blues, gospel, some soul, kind of all those influences that we've brought together over the years. Uh, I'd say I got started in music listening to cassette tapes on the bench seat of my dad's Volvo, listening to some gospel and Rolling Stones. A nice rotation that bled nicely into, you know, starting to play in some local churches and gospel music and then graduated to some CD dive bars and, and biker establishments and now I'm happy to be playing with these guys down here in Atlanta, Georgia. I'd say what motivates and inspires a lot of the music from my perspective is uh, a lot of catharsis and being able to to write what you're going through and what you're seeing and kind of you know feel your way through an experience or through a feeling kind of as you're playing and as you're writing and you know fortunately I, I get to play with some guys that, that make great music and, and they kind of allow me that space to express myself and, and still come together as one you know moving sound and I'm grateful for that. So Thistledown is a story name derived from a, a horse track, not necessarily about gambling, but more maybe, you know, about kind of the effort and the energy and, and the time that, you know, you kind of put into life and put into others and put into this world and not really receiving back what you would expect or hope to receive for everything that you've given. Yeah, so we've got a show coming up here on July 2nd at Star Community Bar in Little Five Points uh, with C. Shorty and Antic Clay. It's one of our, our favorite venues in town to play. And then we've got a show on August 6th up outside the perimeter um, that All Together Now Productions is putting on up at From the Earth Brewery. And that's going to be with Smoking Novas. So we're excited about both of those and we hope you all can come out and rock out with us.
guitarist and singer Brandon Neal and our series Speaking of Music. More information about the rock and soul band Rare Birds is on our website, wabe.org. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., the curator of the new Wren's Nest exhibition, Unframed Images, photography from the collection of P.H. Polk, explains why Polk's work was considered radical for his time. If you missed part of today's show, you could catch up on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There you'll find our complete archive of interviews, so you can listen to City Lights on your own schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Drobes. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. Do connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on Facebook and Instagram. And you can follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org donate. And thanks.